Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. We're picking back up today in the book of Mark. There's a central theme throughout the whole book of Mark. It's the one thing that we know that, that uh, John Mark wants you to know all the way through with every story, with every message, with every account, with everything taught. Mark wants you to learn something. He wants to reinforce the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Jesus changes lives. Jesus transforms culture. He is God in the flesh here so that you can be at peace with God. That is the core message of the book of Mark, and I don't want you ever to walk away on a Sunday having missed that. If Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life, if you've not made a decision in your life at any point to accept Him as your Lord and your Savior, I would highly encourage you during the course of this week, give me a call, give any one of our elders a call, let's sit down and talk about that. Uh, it's not any gigantic bell and whistle, it's just a decision, you making a choice to follow Jesus, committing your heart and your soul to Him, and allowing Him to come in your heart and be your Savior, your Lord, your friend, and put you at peace with God. That's what the church is in the business of doing. So uh, just know that that door is open to you with no pressure. We're not going to make a gigantic public spectacle of you and uh, make you come up in front of the church and tell your story and confess all your sins. None of that. Uh, but we do want you to have an opportunity, uh, having been in Sturgeon Bay Community Church, to make a decision for Jesus Christ, if that's where he's guiding you. Let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we are going to dive straight into uh, our message for today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for John Mark. We thank you for the fact that you called him that you impacted his life, that you spoke truth into his life, that he got to see your, you as a resurrected Savior and Lord. He got to walk with Peter, and that later in his life, God, when the time came, he sat down and he wrote the very first of the Gospels. I thank you that he did that. I thank you that we can read it these many years later, and we can still come to the conclusion, after having read the stories and the accounts, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I pray that that message resonates in our hearts. We walk away from here today challenged that we can be more like you and less like the culture around us. These things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you're anything like me, you might have grown up in a religious tradition where there were some rules and regulations. Anybody else kind of grew up that way? When I was a kid growing up, we, we, we heard this, this rule over and over and over. It was straight out of the King of James with Bible, and it said, Avoid ye even the appearance of evil. Remember? And so there were things that you just didn't do because you wanted to avoid the appearance of evil. Among those, um, just, just let me know, you know, amen or something if, if you want to get your, your, uh, your Baptist on. Or, uh, when, when I was growing up, we didn't, we didn't drink things called root beer or ginger ale out of the bottles because, you know, people might assume that as an eight-year-old you've developed a drinking habit. You don't want to do it. So it, it had the appearance of evil. You just didn't want to have that thing around. God forbid if you went to a nicer restaurant that you would drink your water out of a stemmed glass because people might assume that mama's getting her buzz on at Red Lobster or something. You want, you're not going to do that because it might look like you're sinning. Guys should not have long hair. Sorry, mom. Um, no, you guys definitely don't have earrings. 
Uh, girls definitely don't have more than one earring. People might think you're listening to Madonna behind the scenes. Now, you don't go to the movie theater after dark because nobody knows what you went to see, right? You may come out of the theater. You might have been watching Indiana Jones or Home Alone 9, but, but they may think that you went to see some wicked R-rated movie. And so you want to avoid the appearance of evil. These are really important. Um, one of the other things we had to be very careful about as kids, of course, was uh, mixed bathing. Now, that's not taking a bath together. Mixed bathing was you make sure that guys and girls don't swim together in the same pool, preferably not even the same ocean at the same time, because mixed bathing could lead to fornication, which could ultimately lead to dancing. And we had to be careful these things were not done because it would have the appearance of evil. Now, we kid about it in today's world, and we joke around, but I, honestly, I'm eternally grateful um, just for the fact that those guardrails were in place. You see... Um, Jesus' followers are called to be people of the way. That's what the early church called itself, the way. And when you have a road that's a good road and a path you're supposed to be on, on either side there's a ditch. That's where the water runs off and you know the deer dies and falls over. You need to stay out of the ditch and there's guardrails to protect you from going off the sides of the road. And I am grateful that I can stand here today and say, I didn't veer very far off that way that Jesus had called us to. Now, there was a rebellious time in my life, and many of you may resonate with that story in your own or, or with your own children or your own friends. But if we're raised the way we should go, chances are we don't veer too far. And in the end, we oftentimes come back to the way we were raised in. Mark is going to be delivering a story today. It's one that's one of the more uncomfortable ones in Scripture. It doesn't sound like it's energizing and, oh, hey, that's encouraging. Mark wants you to see a contrast, a severe contrast. And that contrast is going to be the way pagans live and the way Christians live. Mark wants you to understand what it looks like when you've gone so far off the way, so far off the path, um, that your behavior, your actions are even worse than the pagans in the world around you. Mark is going to be telling us a story. He's going to paint it. Uh, he's going to tell it the same way the other apostles do about Herod, a party at Herod's house and some things that happened. And um, it's going to be an example of how we don't live. So Mark is going to offer that as the other disciples did in a way um, that's in the pejorative. So this is what you don't do. Now, as we get set up for Mark chapter 6, verse 14 through 29, that's Mark 6. 14 to 29. As you turn in your Bibles there, get ready there. If you're a note taker, getting your nugget books out and ready to roll. Uh, let me set it up for you just a little bit. There's a guy by the name of John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. John patterned himself much after Isaiah, a little bit after Jeremiah in some ways. Don't, don't take that too far, but he, he took that. He also, after Elijah and Elisha, John the Baptist called people to repent and be baptized, and to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Anytime you hear the word kingdom of heaven in the scripture, what it means is God's way of doing things, an example of God's preferred methodology for living and reigning. And when John is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying Jesus, the Messiah, is at hand. It's here. God's way of doing things is upon you. Repent of the lifestyles that you're living, and turn back to God's way. Jesus, during his ministry on earth, um, on several occasions, had preached according to this. One of the times he had said um, to preach to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is in Matthew. Uh, Jesus told him, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and raise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name in all nations beginning 
in Jerusalem. This is recorded by uh, Dr. Luke, one of his apostles. That word repent means to feel sorry from where you are and to go the other direction. As, as, a, as a young man, one of the things we learned at Liberty University as we were learning what repentance means, repentance means stop, turn around, and go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Got it? So repentance looks like this. Other way. Okay, if that's the path you're on, stop, turn your back to it, and go the other way. Repentance doesn't necessarily have to be some gigantic public spectacle. It can be stop, other way. So when John was preaching repentance, preaching the message of Jesus, his cousin, by the way, when this message is getting preached, everybody understood that they're being called to account. They're being called to make a decision and to turn. This was the message of John the Baptist, and as he spoke that message, John didn't just speak in the wilderness. John was in town, too. John's followers, his apostles, his, his disciples were coming into town, and they were preaching this. And John the Baptist had spoken directly against something that one of the kings there in Jerusalem had been doing. He had spoken directly against the sinful lifestyle they were living, and he, as a, as a prophetic figure, had definitely set himself against the wills of the political figures. So this is who John the Baptist was, unafraid, speaking the word, a voice crying in the wilderness, and he had definitely ruffled some feathers. With that understanding, let's pick up in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Uh, the last part of this got cut off, and, and I'm, I apologize for that, but you'll, I'll read it to you and we'll all follow along. So Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 20. King Herod heard about it. Oh, by the way, the it is Jesus' apostles going out and healing and, and, uh, and doing the work of the kingdom. King Herod heard about it, and because Jesus' name had become well known, some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why the miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of a long time ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John the Baptist, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he, Herod, had married. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to hear John. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. I mean, really? The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, Herodias said. At once, Salome, that's the girl, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately set for an executioner and commanded him, John, the executioner to bring him John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and he gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. 
Here we are at a party with a spiteful maniac. Isn't it the case, though, when you get called out, it's for sin? Isn't it the case, though, when, when your sin becomes evident, when you're called into account, that you want to push back? And isn't it the case sometimes when somebody offends you, rightly or wrongly, that you just kind of wish they would go away or just die so you don't have to be held accountable for what you've done? In this scenario that we've got going on right here, Herodias, a deeply ungodly, unrestrained woman, Jew, knows what's wrong, knows what she should not be doing, knows she has broken God's law, knows that she has violated even the laws of her own, of her Roman and her Jewish culture. She's called out for her sin, and she hates John for it. But not like the hate that goes, man, I don't know whether she'd let this go. Leave me alone here. She hates him in a way. She's looking for a way to kill him because he dares cross her. This spiteful maniac is going to be given her opportunity. She's going to use her daughter to achieve her wicked ends, and she's going to do it in a way that people will look at and be afraid of them because of how wicked she actually is. What is it that Mark wants us to see? You see, Mark is trying to help you understand how opposite God's way is from the world's way. And he's going to help you see in their culture when this message was delivered and, and, and people were being reminded just how far from God Herod and his wife Herodias had actually gone. That their behavior was actually unacceptable even to the Roman world. How deep the depravity, friends, so what we're going to do today, we're going to learn from a profoundly bad example how we should not behave. And then we're going to turn that over to look at how should Christians behave. So a few things about, um, about Herod that I just wanted to point out and make sure we're clear about. First of all, King Herod is a tetrarch. His father was also Herod. His father was the one that, that, that had done so much evil and then when he you know, was consumed by worms and died that, that his children were, uh, were given areas to rule in Judea by the Romans. So there were a number of them. And these tetrarchs each controlled a little bit of territory um, that their father had once controlled. The cultural norms of Rome were the ones they were living according to, not even to their Jewish traditions, although they're all Jewish kings. They hold a customary title. They collect taxes aggressively so. They're the ones who can do execution of Jews, uh, but, the, but this power lies in them. Here's how far Herod has gone, though, how far down the corruption road that John wants us to see. Herod um, would throw parties. Now, you're familiar with parties, right? We've been to some parties. You've gone to good parties and bad parties. The parties that Herod was throwing were something that we would call uh, the conwivium or conwigium, depending on how you want to say it. I don't speak Latin very well at all, so I'm going to say conwivium. So the conwivium was this party that the Romans would throw, and the idea of the conwivium was basically this. Nothing is off the table. At a conwivium, everything goes. So anything you, you ever heard of of being wrong, anything that you wouldn't normally do in excess, anything that would be a taboo, at a conwivium, everybody gets to do that. So how much food do you eat? As much as you can pack in your system. Does it make you vomit and then you go eat some more? Do that. You know, is there anything off the table whatsoever? Nothing. Nothing would be debased. Nothing would be considered wrong at a conwivium. 
Let your mind run with that for just a minute in the ancient world. This is the kind of party that Herod was throwing. Some of the things that we know about conweviums, um, really we've seen in, in murals. The Romans loved to do murals, right? They, and so they, they would take the, you know, all the little tiles and they put them all together and you call that a mosaic. Mosaics survived for a really long time, so we have a good idea of what went on at conweviums. But we have an even clearer idea at what went on in what's called a bacchanalia or the worship of Dionysus. Um, the, 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 Asian, or the Asian version of that is called Bacchus. So Bacchus parties were a religious ceremony where nothing is off the table. So take the conwemium to a whole nother level, and now it's a religious act. And so anything you do here is not only allowed, it's encouraged, and they're going to make way for it. And it's going to go completely off the rails at these Bacchanalia. We know from ancient scholars who recorded it, some from Jerome, uh, some from Pliny, and some from Irenaeus, we know exactly what went on at them. And folks, it, it blows you away. Poor decisions made in the course of these types of party that, that uh, Herod was throwing, these Bacchanalia and Conwemium, um, the complete lack of moderation complete and total lack of moderation. Apply that in your mind for just a second. We've got a mixed audience, but bear with you. What could happen when there's absolutely no moderation whatsoever? Self-ingratiating shows of wealth. Sound familiar? <laughs> in our world, have you ever been to any kind of a party where the person throwing it just can't wait to show off a little bit? You know, they're kind of, oh, oh this old thing? <laughs> you, know the, you know the type debauchery, vice at its lowest level. I mean, the kind of things that even secular folks would go, wow, okay, uh, all right. If nothing's wrong, I guess if everything's okay, then they're just consumed in their, in their passions and their lusts to do things that Vengeance and maliciousness was common at Bacchanalia. In fact, uh, one of the things that Pliny had recorded that, or may, maybe it was Arrhenius, I'm not sure, but that had recorded that at these, at these Bacchanalia, they were usually large, and it would be completely common for somebody to get raped, killed, or robbed. That somebody would kind of become the focus that the whole conwewium or the Bacchanalia would turn on and totally do them over. And they became kind of the victim, the sacrifice at the Bacchanalia, that that would be really common that something like that would happen. In fact, it should just be expected. If you go, you're kind of rolling the dice. So you better go hoping that you kind of have an out plan or that you're protected or pretend you're someone else or, or be a part of the group that dogs on somebody else so it doesn't happen to you. That would be a part. And, of course, at these types of parties, the sexual perversion was beyond things that San Francisco, San Francisco and Las Vegas could even imagine. This is way, way beyond acceptable. This is the kind of partying that the king of the Jews was doing. This is the kind of party that John had stood there and said, Repent! Repent! To the king and to his illegitimate wife who hated him for it and was looking for her chance to get back. Mark is making sure that we are reading this and understanding what it looks like when you are completely away from God's way of doing things. When you have so adapted the world's ways that you've taken it to an even more base and debaucherous level. This is the party that Herod, the king of the Jews, was throwing. 
Solomon, in his later life, um, used all of that great wisdom and great wealth to do some things we know Scripture from, from reading in Scripture that in no way demonstrated the great wisdom he was supposed to be living by. Solomon raised his children in ways that simply did not honor God. Matter of fact, you can evidence by the downfall of the nation of Israel, the kingdom, after the death of Solomon and what happened there. It really is heartbreaking. And when you read the Ecclesiastes, when you read the, the, the writings of, of, of Proverbs, you hear all the wisdom that later in life Solomon wished he had followed. But it's a classic example of do what I say, not what I do. And one of the things that Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that we need to hear, I want you to hear the brokenness of his heart going, oh, I wish I had done it right. He said, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. You've heard it like this, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I sought to hold on to vapor. Solomon is looking back going, I did it wrong. But what did Solomon do? Everything. Everything his eyes wanted, he took and he did. No moderation. And he knew better. But how many of us, like Herod, like Solomon, know better? And we do what's wrong anyway. We look at things that we know we're not supposed to. We touch things we know we're not. We engage in things we know. We buy things we know. We have things we know. We think things we need. We hold things. And at the end of the day, what does it bring us? A heartache. It's vapor. What are you holding? It doesn't, the pleasure you hoped it would bring you keeps escaping. It's a classic tale of addiction, isn't it? Nothing under the sun brought him pleasure. So Solomon is trying to get across to us what Herod should have understood. And that, friends... What Mark wants you to see is that the way of the world, in the end, it does not bring fullness. It does not bring death. Christians should be living directly opposite of that. So, how, Pastor Shannon, do you take all that negativity from this passage? Thanks a lot for the bummer. Uh, how do you take all that and then come out with a message today where we can go, cool, got it, I can act with that. Well, we do it like this. Uh, we're going to turn this around and we're going to go, here's the don't. And it automatically points us to the do. So the title for the rest of the message today is, okay, welcome to Community Church. We kind of interact a bit here, so let's say it together. We're going to learn today to, yeah, we're going to learn how to party like Christians. Now, don't get the wrong idea in your head. This is not going to be some crazy party out there. We're going to go, I don't, I don't dance, by the way, I already told you, okay, so... The fullness of Christian fellowship, uh, we're going to look at, and some good advice for how to behave in public celebrations and how just to live our lives as Christians. That's going to be our goal today. So what we're going to do, we looked at the bad example. Let's turn it around and look at the early church and some of the fantastic examples, uh, examples some fantastic examples that they set for us. So the, the poor decisions we saw from Herod were lack of moderation, self-aggrating shows. Well, fantastic examples we're going to see in the early church. If you have your Bibles, Turn them over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, put your finger on verse 42. We'll roll over there in just a minute. Fantastic examples we're going to see set by the early church of how Christians ought to party. Number one, 
They had a complete lack of classes. Okay, In America, even today, and certainly in the Roman world, you had classes. You, you feel me here, right? You, you got the wealthy, you got the educated, you got the locals, you got the smart. And then on the other side, you kind of have the, the outsiders, the not so wealthy, the don't act so good. See, that would be us. In Roman society, it gets pretty intense. Their strata was pretty severe. You had people who were slaves. You had people who were Roman citizens. You had people who were uh, impoverished because of bad decisions or because they had been cheated or they went to a conwilium and they lost. You know, So these classes were very real. If you were from this region or that region, race, ethnicity, social class, gender, all these things put them in a class system. But for the Christians, there was neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor man nor woman. All were one in Jesus Christ. And so for the Christians, when they came together, it was we. We as one, we as family. There were self-sacrificing shows of charity amongst the Christians in the early church. You know about one of these. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Okay, four of you? Awesome. So Ananias and Sapphira, it kind of goes like this for, for the rest of you uh, who didn't grow up in Sunday school and hear the story. Uh, in the early church, people would come and, and they would sell property. Maybe that was, a, and they had a mule, you know, they had two foals this year, they sold one. Or maybe they had an extra piece of land or an extra house or, or they, they had an inheritance and they would give part of it away. What they would do, they would, they would bring those proceeds to the church and they would give it to the church. And what the church would do then through the, through the deacons, the diaconos, the apostles, they would distribute those resources as need arose. Um, by the way, they all met in the temple. Right? They, they already had their church building, so they didn't have to build it. The Jews had already built it for them, so be careful how far you take the, the illustrations there. But they made sure that the apostles were taken care of when they went to take the gospel. to other when, when the church in Jerusalem heard about the needs of the church in Antioch, they provided for them. And then later, the church in Antioch would provide for Jerusalem. Widows, orphans, people who had been wronged, prisoners, they took care of them. That's what their tithes and offerings did. So it was a big part of their worship to bring together resources and to use them for kingdom purpose. Ananias, though, and his wife Sapphira, they kind of liked all that that attention that seemed to be given to the people who were bringing gifts. And instead of praising the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira would see people bring gifts and go, man, I want all that. I want to be liked. I want everybody to look at me and think I'm somebody special and treat me good and maybe give me some preferential seat at the table. Or maybe I can get on a board or, or on a committee there at the church if, if I do something nice like that. So Ananias shows up in church one, one day and, and uh, people are all bringing gifts and he comes in and he says, I brought a gift too. And he makes a big show and spectacle of giving some money, more than you gave, wasn't it? <laughs> and he makes a big show of it. And Peter says, in essence, moron, that's not what you sold the land for. Everybody knows what you sold the land for. And you're bringing this gift to the church to bring you glory and honor, to take people's attention off of Christ off of the Holy Spirit and off of the other givers and to put it on yourself so that you can benefit from the gospel and take people's eyes away from Jesus. And the guy drops dead. Wow. Now, by the way, that's why I don't know what anybody gives in the life of our church. I don't want you to drop dead next time we have a conversation, just the service I provide. Ananias comes in, he dies there. Sapphira, his wife, comes in a little while later, and the same thing happens. Now, does that mean that there's a message that God strikes people down if they don't tithe? 
yeah, that's exactly what it means. So don't forget after the service on your way. What it means is they sought to defraud the Holy Spirit and draw attention to themselves and destroy the work that God was doing there. And God takes his church seriously. Friends, we give back to God out of a sense of deep gratitude for what he's done for us. We love to be able to do as a church and to minister and to disciple and to transform community. And that's why we give. Ananias and Sapphira missed the concept of self-sacrificing charity. And they wanted to be just like at a conwilium or just like at one of these uh, bacchanalia where they wanted the self-ingratiating show. You kind of see what Mark is trying to draw your attention to. Here's another one, though. Intense communal identity. Let me ask you a question. How many of you uh, grew up in a church where you sang a lot of songs that talked about I and me? A lot of those worship songs, it's always I, always me. Me, me, I, 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 me, me. Did it ever start to occur to you? There's a lot of these starting to merge their way into the Christian faith today. It seems that the hymns of old and the classic songs that we sang for so many generations were we, us, the church, the body, the, the saints, the faith. But it seems that in contemporary time, it's become so much more about me and I. Now, not that every song that says I is going to be wrong, but I wonder if it might be something to be noticed about where our attention as people in the 21st century church has moved. Rather than we, the people of God, we, the fellowship, we, the church, lift our voices in praise, it seems that so much more it's about me, 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 I, I, I. And we go pick churches that make me happy and do for me, meet my needs. And I go and like, well, I don't like the carpet color and the children's place isn't as nice as I would like it to be. So I'm going to go to that other church because they've got better carpet and I like their children's ministry. You know, the, the way the pictures on the wall are done a little better. And then I like the way the pastor talked to me a little better there. And, the, you know, the coffee was better and and we tend to make our decisions about where we're going to use the gifts and talent and time and treasure that God's invested in us based upon what I can get out of it and me, what it does for me, rather than find out how can I serve God and serve His people with the things He's entrusted me with. Hmm. It makes its way even into our worship. Now, some songs absolutely should say I. Today we sang, I surrender all. Why? Because it's a personal call to commitment and to action. I surrender. We're going to close our service in that song today. So don't hear me saying all songs that say I or we are bad. But I do want us to pay a bit closer attention to the songs that we sing and how we celebrate and what we're hearing. Because for the early church, friends, it was a community. It was we. And if one had need, all came together to meet it. When one was abandoned, the church wrapped them up. When one was hungry, the church made sure they were fed and provided for. When one lost a family member, the church was there to grieve. When one celebrated, the church was there to party with them. This is what they did. And they threw parties to do exactly that. They partied like Christians. The Christian community was gathering together, and part of what they did, they were reinforcing values and ethics. And the underlying message of all of these Christian gatherings in this Christian church was that one message, that one royal law, and that was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they took it seriously. How seriously? Well, I'm glad you asked. There is an example throughout the early Testament, the early church and the early New Testament, about what Christians did. And it was called the love feast or the agape.
excuse me, the agape. We find three really good examples of the agape. Uh, one is in Acts chapter 2 that I asked you to put your fingers on a minute ago. Another one is evidenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the third one is very clearly and unambiguously spoken of by Jude, because Jude is known for a lot of things, but ambiguity is, and ambiguity is not one of them. So Jude is going to be very clear about what this love feast is and what was going on there amongst the Christians. So the agape looked a lot like it did in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonder signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. These agape feasts, these were meals, these were celebrations, they were parties. They were partying like Christians. They were getting together and doing the things that typified the people of Jesus Christ. Hey, what were some of the things that typified the people of Jesus Christ? Don't be shy. What's on the screen? What do you see? What'd they do? Love, joy, and peace. There we go. Fruits of the Spirit. But specifically, specifically, what are some things you can see up there? What were they doing? They what? Yeah. How many of you love to eat your meals with jerks? Isn't that great? Man, that neighbor, what a jerk. Would you like to come over for dinner? No. The Christians were gathering together and they were eating their meals together. They were fellowshipping together. They loved one another. What else were they doing? Sharing. Well, sharing, now wait a minute, what you probably mean, Shannon, is each one just, you know, they kind of say, and they were nice, and they shared stories. That's what you mean, right? No? What did they do when they shared? They gave of their resources to help meet the resource needs of others. Wow. Does that sound very Roman to you? No. You think that was going on at Herod's party? No. What were they trying to do at Herod's party? Take advantage of people, benefit off of people, draw attention to themselves. What are the Christians doing? With humility and joy. They're sharing, they're giving, they're spending time together. Folks, they're characterized by the fact that they loved to be together. They had a common bond that drew them into fellowship. Now hear me, we like to eat dinners and meals together because as human beings, this is something we all understand. We want to have meals with people whose company we enjoy. Am I wrong? No. Isn't it horrible when you get invited to a business dinner party? You know what I'm talking about, right? The one where that boss is going to be there and those people are going to be there. Are you like, yay! No. It can make the best meal horrible. It tastes like ash when you have to sit around with these folks. Oh, because the company is bad. But how, how often does this happen? Remember back in the days when you were dating? I mean, you know, way, way back then, right? Okay, so back in the days when you were dating and, and, and you invite somebody and, and you go have a meal together, right? And, and if it's a good date, doesn't the food just taste great and the time is wonderful and the lights were just right? And, and that's the best Chipotle you ever had, right? But... Chipotle is a restaurant in, in, um, in areas where there's a population density. It's a Mexican place you go. But 
But when you go to a, a you go on a nice date and you go to a nice restaurant, it's really great and you enjoy the food. But if you've gone on a date and it's just, oh, this person's a jerk. I can't stand them. I can't believe I'm here. I hope nobody sees me. How good's the food? Okay, now see, look. Christians were gathering together and they were sharing their meals in common. Fellowship, joy, peace, and all this together they shared because they had one thing in common that all of them were united in. And that's the saving love and grace of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. This is how they behaved. A challenge. We as people are not always really good. And, and I'm, I'm going to say we because we've been living up here eight years now. And, and now that I've become a little bit of a local, I find I'm not as open. I'm not trying to be goofy. Be serious over here. Just second fellow Southerners. But I find that I find that the way I was raised in my younger years and the way that I gravitate to living after being here only eight is a little different. And it's that I don't tend to have people in my house as often anymore. We used to, I mean, every day it seemed like somebody was coming over for dinner or we were going over to their houses for dinner. And it was just so communal. And we, we did dinner on the grounds at church and potluck dinners all the time. And we just couldn't wait to spend our time together and eat together and be together and laugh together. And, uh, it, it, and it, was, it was normative. But I find so much less goes on. And I don't know why. But I know that I've fallen into that trap. And Kim and I are trying to be very intentional about not doing that anymore. Uh, making sure that we have our house open more often, have people over more often. And can I challenge you to do the same? Can I challenge you even more specifically, though, as your life group? Would you have your meals together? Would you enjoy one another's company? Would you laugh together? And would you invite people to fill an empty chair at that table who need to see what it's like to party like a Christian? In a place where there's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and sharing and understanding. Listen, we weep with those who are weeping. We go through hard times together. We celebrate together. We share as people have needs and we have resources. This is what we do. This is the Christian community. And something the early church did that I think is beautiful. They broke their bread together and they celebrated communion together. You see, the thing about the love feast that was so unique in those early days is that they ate their food together, but they also celebrated that communion, that Eucharist, together as people. Now, you all know this already because you've spent some time in the Scripture, okay? Priests do not distribute the elements of communion in the Bible. That is profoundly nonsensical and completely inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture. Let that resonate. In the early Christian church, what the folks were doing, they were not gathering at the temple to celebrate Eucharist. They were gathering in homes and at their meals. One of the things that the host would do is that she or he, as the host of this meal, would say, the meal is about to begin. And he or she would break the bread as a symbol that it's time for the meal to begin. It was, it was a custom that they had. It's kind of like what we do. We pray at the beginning of our meals. Everybody's chattering and having their thing. We're coming together and all the food. Oh, I can't wait to eat. I'm so hungry. And like my mom said, you don't eat unblessed food. It'll rot in your stomach. And I'm sure that's truth because my mom said it. And, uh, and the other thing was flag down, napkin in your lap. Okay, that was the good. Don't put your elbow on the table. I'm sure that's in Scripture somewhere too. It's right next to cleanliness. is next to godliness and a place for everything and everything in its place. And then... <laughs> I love my mom. I'm just picking at her. 
Wouldn't it be fantastic to be a part of one of those early Christian agape meals? Sadly, right around 300, they stopped. Constantine and other goofballs had decided that what we needed was a much more rigid church, a much more liturgical organization. And they gave way to the church going from being the family of God to the structure and the hierarchy and bishops and priests and orders and rules and regulations. And something was lost. I'd love for us to revive it. But imagine that meal. They, they gather and the, the host breaks the bread and says, let the, let the festivities begin. Often they would open in prayer thanking God for what he had provided. Asking him to bless the meal and the people there and the conversation. And we do that today, the blessing of our meals. And as we broke it and we passed it, the people would eat. But at the closing of so many of those early agape feasts, these love feasts, what they would do is the host again would stand or, and he or she would say, as, as we remember or celebrate our time, can our minds be drawn back to Christ who took the bread? And as he broke it, he said, this is my body. It's given for you. And the people would all take it and they would take the bread. And they would pass the wine and say, as his blood was shed for us, let's never forget the price that made it possible for us to be at peace with God. Let our lives be like our Savior's. So every one of these love feasts would have the celebration, the festivities, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the sharing, all this in common that's the living out of the Christian faith and then reminder of who we really are. That was a love feast. And Mark wants you to see that. Mark very much wants us to, to look to that and realize that there's a difference between the bacchanalia, <clears throat> the conwiwium of the world, and the agape of the Christian church. Let this love be among you, was essentially the message Mark was showing. Don't be that. Be this. Don't behave that way. Let us be so completely different that this is how people see us. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20, uh, we're encouraged this way. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians, and the Ephesians knew how to party. Great city, Ephesus, everything was there for him. Incredible wealth, prosperity, uh, peace. It was, everything was there for the Ephesians. They had nothing but to be happy. But Paul's warning them, listen, it's a message of moderation. I want to make sure we're hearing today, okay? I want to be careful that we don't dive off into one side of the ditch or to the other as Christians. Understand this, that being drunk is utterly and completely inconsistent with the Christian lifestyle. Can we agree? Let me try again. I only heard Chuck, so, so I want to say one more time. The ER doc can agree. The rest of you can jump on board here. Listen, listen, listen. Being drunk is inconsistent with God's way of living. Can we agree? Okay. <laughs> I grew up hearing that Jesus turned the water into grape juice. And it's not that my mom said that. I don't think my mom ever went down that road because, you know, we're from New Orleans, so. But, but this whole idea that said, you, you fill it in, that somehow um, Jesus didn't really drink wine, and you shouldn't either. What? 
Somehow that, that the message of Solomon to his son saying that strong drink is not for kings, translated into Christians should never touch alcohol. Now, I want to look at that honestly for just a minute. Can alcoholism, can the consumption of alcohol be a sin? Hey, folks, yeah, okay? Um, I, I've got a really good friend who struggled most of his life with alcoholism. The incredible turnaround in his life when, he, when Jesus has healed him of that has been profound. I've also had friends who've struggled with alcoholism in their family, and it just seems that grandparent after grandparent after aunt after uncle just can't control themselves, and alcohol to them is like crack to somebody else, and they just can't. They can't do it. It's too easy to fall into that trap. But we got raised in our house with something that I think was really, really wise. And it kind of goes like this. One and done. You can have one. Don't you dare refill that glass. Okay? You've gone from enjoyment to using. There's a huge difference. Now, I'm not saying that has to be your rule. But, he, but here's what I want you to think about. If we're Jesus' people... If we are to be light in darkness, salt in tastelessness, an example that others can look to, is there any way we can justify drunkenness or the abuse of narcotics and drugs? No. That would be inconsistent with God's call upon our lives. Also within the scripture, we see the importance that we don't cause another to stumble. Would I have a drink in front of somebody I know is struggling with moving away from alcoholism, or for them it's a struggle, would I do that? No. Do I need it? No. But if ever you see this creeping up in your own life, the abuse, the offense given to others, knowing it offends them and not caring, if you see those things, I want to be drawn back to Ephesians 5. And I want to be thinking about we do these things in the name of God the Father and in the name of the Son. And we're speaking in psalms and songs and spiritual songs and celebrating and loving one another and making the most of the time. Folks, let's put some guardrails up on our lives. Let's not fall into the ditch on one side where drunkenness is fine because it's all about grace, right? Let's not be fools who fall in that ditch. And let's also not be legalistic fools who fall into the other and say, all alcohol is sin, and anybody who drinks it is condemned to the fires of hell. Let's not be fools. Let's remember that the way of Jesus Christ is clear in Scripture. It's about an example. We set an example to other people of how we live our lives. Can we live our lives in such a way that people will be challenged and wonder, how is it that you're so different? We certainly can. I cannot tell you. I wonder if I have time. Can I do that today? Have a, uh, I can. I'm gonna do, even if I go over, I'm going to show you a fun story. Um, we can use our purity as an example to tell others about the gospel and to open their ears to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to jump off notes, and then I'm going to come back to it. I'll put these principles up, and then we'll, um, we'll come to it. When I was in seminary this last time, I, I was doing another master's because we were changing course in, in ministry where God had called us. And so... Um, when you go to Southwestern Seminary or when you go to Liberty or to Wake Forest, you sign a covenant that says you will not have any alcohol uh, and you will not use profanity and a lot of the rules that you agree to that you won't do while you're at the seminary. Kind of follow me? Okay. Well, I signed a covenant 
So my name goes in that covenant, and it says, I will not consume alcohol while I am a student at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I made a promise. Well, as it turns out, um, people in Texas do, in fact, have drinks from time to time, right? And I was continually around folks who were all having a drink, and I had to say, no, I can't. I, I, I can't right now. I'm in a season of life where I, don't, I can't have any alcohol. But thank you. I appreciate it. You guys have fun. Um, so I'm a little bit of a gearhead guy back then, and I used to hang out at a place uh, down in Everman, Texas, where it was kind of like a co-op of people who worked on hot rods and motorcycles and everything. And this was a very non-Christian environment, <laughs> for sure. And uh, in this non-Christian environment, all these other uh, guys and, and sometimes some gals would be there and they would work on cars and have really inappropriate jokes and the pictures on the walls were not exactly what you would see in church and uh, so this place I would go and I would work on thing and they, they called me preacher wrench okay this is the name I get because I won't drink and I won't tell dirty jokes and laugh at their rancid jokes they're just kind of like yeah that's cool feel better now all right that's great but they respected me because I respected them. We had a good thing. Well, what would frequently happen <laughs> at, uh, is, is about halfway through the day or something like that, and everybody's working, everybody's going, all right, we're taking a break, and everybody go into this, this break room, this, this uh, kind of lunchroom thing they'd set up, and um, everybody would have a couple of beers or something, and I would always have some iced tea, you know? That's, that's what I could do. And everybody give me a hard time. Oh, we're going to have a drink. Too good for us? Like, no, nah, man, I made a promise. Till the end of May, I'm not going to be touching any alcohol. Thank you, though. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'd catch some flack for it. But everybody knew who I was. You tracking so far? And I wasn't attacking anybody for their drink. I just, I'm not. I made a promise. I'm not going to break my promise. Uh, so they all knew who I was. They knew I was in ministry. And from time to time, they'd, you know, kind of rib me this, that, or the other, you know, call me preacher wrench, and that was their thing. And, and um, from time to time, people would actually try to give you a hard time and make an issue out of it. Well, I graduated. And it's mid-May, 2006. Six, seven, it's been a long time. I'm old near death, I forget. But we, we go to, we, we're here working this day, and it's, at, it's kind of the time everybody's going to take a break. Well, I knew that day was coming, right? And so I had, I had gotten my favorite beer in the world. It's called Ziegenbach, and I'd really been thinking about Ziegenbach for about three years. And uh, so I got one, and I put it in the fridge in there, and I had a little koozie around it so nobody would know. And, and everybody comes in for their, for their thing, and they're all, everything, and they're doing their thing. And uh, they would do these toasts. I'm not going to say any more than that. But they would do these toasts, and they'd stand up, and they'd hold their drink up, and blah, 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 and do the little toast. Everybody would have a drink. And uh, I never did them because I just had tea. And so everybody's in there that day, and, and it's kind of going, there's probably 30 or 40 people, and I had my Ziegenbach, and I stood up, and I said, I've got one for you. And everybody kind of stops, and I, I pop the top off, and I said, for three years, I have, uh, I've been out here working with you guys, and I really appreciate it. I've never had a drink here because I made a promise. And I believe that when a pastor makes a promise, the pastor needs to keep his promise. And I believe that, uh, that Jesus has called us to live lives. And I just go into this whole miniature gospel thing. And I said, so thanks for the past three years. Let me be who I am and you be who you are. So let's have a drink. And I got to have a beer with him. And it was hysterical. And everybody's laughing. But here's the best part. You ready? Some of the most intense theological, doctrinal conversations start to take place. And I was hearing some of these, some of these things like, hey, I got a question for you, you know. My mom prayed to get healed, and she died of cancer anyway. What do you do with that, preacher? Oh, awesome. And I got to talk with these guys about this and answer this question from a godly point of view. Man, God weeps with you too. This is part of the fallen human condition. This is what happens. But don't you know that God was there to greet her upon death to say, I love you. Welcome home. It won't be like this in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus is there to comfort you the way he, he felt pain. He was comforted as well. Hey, listen, folks. Um, 
folks in, in that room that they were asking questions like, hey, I've got, a, I've got a gay uncle. Don't you Christians hate all the gays? Like, oh, man, thank you for asking. I really appreciate you said that out loud. And I got to talk with him about how God loves all and calls us to his lifestyle. Wherever we may be, come as you are. We'll grow together. And eventually more and more and more and more like Jesus where these sins fall away like scales and we leave them behind. And, and oh, man, questions about addiction, questions about where do you go when you die, questions about... I grew up in a church, and it was really mean and hurtful and or false and fake. And, and what is the real gospel like? We talked for hours in that environment. Why? Why? Let, let, it, let it settle in there for a second. Why? Because, you see, when you shine a light in darkness, everybody looks and sees. And if you earn the right to be heard... When you share the gospel with authenticity, people's lives can be changed. Now, I wasn't trying to be St. William there. It just happened that living the Christian life the way God called us to gave an opportunity for the gospel to be heard and some deep hurts to be engaged and some long-time questions to be answered to bikers and, and, and you know, like legit clubbed-up bikers to... to Hot rod guys who hadn't thought about Jesus in a lot of years, whose lifestyles were very inconsistent, evidenced by the decorations in the room. But what I'm telling you, in that moment, God used that place, and I like to think he did it a lot like he did at Zacchaeus' house. You know the kind of parties that Zacchaeus threw? William, Bacchanalia. When Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today, I think it was a pretty different kind of party at Zach's crib. How are we doing it, though? What examples are we setting for the people around us? How are we living lives on purpose? There's some principles for Christians I'd like us to close with today. First of all, um, if the New Testament calls it sin for Christians, or if the behavior is directly attributed to ungodliness or those outside the faith, don't participate. You don't need to make a big jerk of yourself. Just don't participate. No, that's okay. I'll pass. I can't tell you how many times in high school I had to say, oh, that's okay, you can have the joint, I'm not interested. And I can't tell you how many times in college, Christian college, by the way, you know, oh, hey, we're going to this kind of party, you're just going to be going on, no, nah, it's okay, it's not for me, have fun. To pass, because it, it's inconsistent with the Christian life. Hey, at your parties, your birthday parties, your business parties, the things you go to, remember you represent Jesus. And the things that are inconsistent with Christians, let them be inconsistent with you. Don't do them. Don't do them. Just step away politely, gracefully. Don't participate. In all things, remember the royal law. What's the royal law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we're people of love, if we love the folks around us, if we seek to honor God with all we do and to help transform our community by loving God and others, let love be the thing that makes your decisions. It won't look anything like Herod's party when you love people. Third, never forget you're an example of the rest of the Christ-following community. Ooh, did you get that one? You're an example of the rest of the Christ-following community. You represent Him, and you represent me, and I represent you. What kind of words are coming out of your mouth, Christian? What kind of work ethic are you demonstrating, Christian? When you throw a party, what kind of things take place at your party, Christian? Are there some things that in a Christian home you need to step up and go, Hey, dude, not here, okay? Finally, every action creates a consequence. What are the consequences of your choices, good and bad? 
decisions have consequences. It sounds like one of those laws in physics, right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Energy doesn't die, it just goes somewhere else. So every action creates a consequence. What are the consequences of your action? Are you having impact for the kingdom of heaven? Or are you pushing or drawing people away from Jesus because of your actions, because you did them selfishly? As our worship team comes up to close us, I really want us to ponder that last one for a moment. I want us to think hard about the kind of guardrails we've set up in our own lives, the things that we've done to, to make sure that we're consistent with the gospel, that we live out the truth of Jesus Christ and change lives in ways that other people can see what Mark wanted you to see. When you're outside of God's way, it looks like Herod. And look how bad it can go. And look, there's victims. But when you live like Jesus, you're full of the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness and patience, long-suffering, understand. Our minds are full of what's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. That's the Christian party. Party like a Christian. Live like a Christian. Set the example like a Christian. Let no evidence of a Herod-like party that Mark wants us to see ever show up in your lives. May we be humble. May we love mercy. May we seek justice. Let that be what defines us. But here's the question we close on today as we go into a time of prayer. Is there anything in your life that you need to surrender to Jesus? Hey, listen, let's be careful. Has alcohol become something you need and depend on? Hey, Christian, drunkenness isn't for you. It's not for God's people. Is it your right that you're willing to fight for? I ain't giving it up for nobody. I don't care what they think. Maybe you need to surrender that. Hey, is Jesus proud of you? The way you're living your life? If people came to your house and to your party, to your workplace, spent some time with you, would they automatically think, this is a Christian, there's something different, I want to know the difference? Because you see, when you ask questions like that, this question gets real real. Is there anything you need to surrender to Jesus? The song goes like this, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. Let me ask you to close your eyes, to bow your heads at this point. I just want you to get in front of God for a moment. As you're here in front of God, can you do a little bit of an inventory of your life? the way you interact with other people. Your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your children, your spouse, your family. Are there behaviors you're known for that are inconsistent with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are there behaviors that have made their way into your life, into your parties, that most certainly do not belong in an agape feast amongst Christians? Would you ponder that? of your God as our worship team sings.